This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. My name is Rachel Sass, and this episode may sound a little bit different than its normal introduction, and that's because your usual host, Brent Nelson, is very busy lately, and he's been uh, traveling. His schedule has been insane with all these tax changes that we keep on talking about, and spoiler we're going to keep on talking about. So he's been busy traveling and seeing our clients to get all this stuff implemented, so I am taking over the show as your host, and I am joined by my lovely co uh, coworker and colleague, Deborah Plume. Thank you for joining me again, Deborah. Very glad to be here. What a fun topic, tax. Tax. It's just it's just our life, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining me again. So let's let's first talk about at least something that's not tax related because that's literally all we do for 12 hours a day now. I feel like so. Yeah, especially the last few weeks. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So what's been going on in your world? Any any good shows you're watching? Anything like that? Good shows. That's a good one. Well, I split my time when I do watch TV between Succession. Have you heard of it? No, never heard of it. Well, you should watch it. It's all about a very large family-run media empire and the challenges faced with leaving your company to your heirs, which of course might hit a little too close to home, but the drama <laughs> will make it worth it, I promise. And then on the total flip side, totally different, no tax brain, no business thought at all, is you, which is effectively a stalker, serial killer, salacious drama. Ooh, I like it. Okay, what what, what are these on? Are they on Netflix, cable? What are we looking at? So you is on Netflix. Okay. And then Succession is technically on HBO or Showtime, but I have it through Hulu because I have an add-on to that. I paid the extra bucks because I have no cable otherwise. It's a very valuable one, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. I have those. I have you? all of those. I could get all that. Okay. I need to watch those. I've been needing to find a, a new show. I don't have really anything right now. We, you know, of course had to watch and, and binge Squid Games, right? When when that phenomenon happened. I haven't seen it. Oh, how have you not seen Squid Games? <laughs> okay, okay. you need to watch. Okay, binge it this weekend. It's literally just a weekend that you need. It's pretty darn good. I gotta say, it's it the the hype and the phenomena. It it lives up to all of it. Okay, the last Perfect. one I'll give you is that was from last year because I don't think I've even seen the new season or that it hasn't come out. Is I'm sure you've seen it, and now I'm Yellowstone. Have you seen that? No, haven't seen. Okay, that well, as someone who's a horse person and likes riding and likes ranches, and you know my nonprofit runs out of lots of ranches, so we do lots of work with horses. It's all about the West and land ownership and questions of ranchers' rights versus public utilities. So it's a good show. Okay, I think I at least have heard of Yellowstone okay. before. Well, there I feel you go. Like we got I've a common ground. It, I, yeah, I feel like I at least seen a preview on that one there. <laughs> okay, well, I've given you three for your one, so maybe when we're done with the podcast, you can give me a few more recommendations. I gotcha. We'll, we'll find some there. <laughs> Something that's, that's unrelated to our world that we could uh, just kind of melt our brain in after after the day. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So talking about uh, or speaking of melting our brain. All these tax proposals, pretty much all we've been talking about for the last two months. Um, the, 
yeah, this the stuff that you know we we keep saying and and keep explaining, and that Congress just keeps changing on us. So I thought it would be a good idea to just kind of go over. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about before on the podcast what the proposals were, but so let's just kind of briefly go over that again for anyone who hasn't listened to that episode. But then where we're at today, because Congress just recently came out with a revised version of these tax changes. And so I think it's kind of good to see what is all that now and still how we're dealing with this crazy tax landscape. And, you know, are we still doing planning and how is the end of the year going to look for us? So how's that sound for you? Sounds great. And as someone who did listen to the previous version, for those who did, don't worry. The previous version, we are not confident, is necessarily dead in the water. And some of the advice that we're giving is still consistent. So we haven't done a 180 just yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point there. All right. So kind of where we're at, just in a quick little nutshell, I guess. So, you know, we've been talking and, and seeing in the news the uh the the two bills that have been going through through congress so the first bill is the infrastructure bill and that bill actually was just passed uh this last friday so for anyone who's listening to this podcast at a later time it was passed on november 5th by the house and so it'll be going to president biden's desk uh, for signature so the infrastructure bill is done so the second bill that we're really looking at And what we've been really focusing on is the reconciliation bill, which is also known as the Build Back Better Act. Say that five times fast when you haven't had coffee in the morning. I dare you. So that bill uh, is still in negotiations, and that's what we've been talking about for the last two months. So many of our listeners may recall on September 13th, the House Ways and Means Committee passed a number of proposed changes. The bill, I believe, was around 1,800 pages, something like that. It was insane. We really focused in on these changes to the estate planning rules. And so a few of the highlights there that we were looking at before was, one, a reduction in the current gift and estate tax exemption amounts. So for... Um, just a refresher, the current exemptions amount are $11.7 million, and the law is currently set to revert back to its pre-2018 levels, which would be $5 million index for inflation, and that would start in 2026. These proposals that came out in September, we're going to accelerate that sunset so that next year on January 1st, it would revert back to its $5 million uh, level again, index for inflation, so about five and a half, six million. So that was a really big change, right? Because obviously this year we were going to be doing a lot of gifting transactions, making sure that our clients use up all of their their gift tax exemption amount before they lose it. So that was a big one. The second one that was really big was the changes to the grantor trust rules, and this is what had estate planning attorneys freaking out all over the country. Burn in the midnight oil, which which we were definitely were doing, and kind of what the the changes were to the grantor trust rules. You know, in a nutshell, we've got these grantor trusts, and they are really great uh, estate planning techniques that we use to help transfer assets to future generations. And the way that we can craft these trusts is that during the transferor's life, so let's just say mom and dad, mom and dad are going to be considered the grantors of that trust. They're going to retain certain powers over these trusts so that they are considered the owner of these trusts and can pay all the income tax on the trust. And that's really useful because then mom and dad's paying the income tax, 
any assets that are put into the trust can go to the kids or descendants, whoever we're leaving money to, and it can grow tax-free. And then when mom and dad passes away, the trust is now going to be a non-grantor trust. And at that point, any of the assets that were put into the trust are out of mom and dad's estate for federal estate tax purposes. So it's really great because we get two benefits. We get the income tax benefits during mom and dad's life, and we get the estate tax benefits when mom and dad pass away. So they're a really great, useful uh, planning technique. And the changes to these rules, we're going to make it so that if you have any grantor trusts that were formed or funded after the enactment date, so again, we don't know what the enactment date is going to be, um, then at that point, all of those assets are going to be includable in mom and dad's estate for federal estate tax purposes. So it's uh, definitely a loss to one of the benefits. And again, we, we really love using these, these trusts. So the big thing when we saw these proposals come out was trying to create these trusts, get them funded before the enactment date so our clients have them and can utilize them, whereas afterwards, they may never be able to really utilize these types of trusts. The last change that we saw uh, were going to be changes to the valuation discounts. And this was going to be eliminating valuation discounts on passive assets as of the enactment date. And so we discussed before, you know, a lot of clients hold their assets in family owned businesses and they can do that. And when you look at how they're owned, they could be held, you know, 30 percent by mom and dad, 70 percent by the kids and their irrevocable trust. And when you've kind of got split control like that, you're able to take valuation discounts on these businesses, lack of marketability, lack of control. Some of those are some of the main ones that we see when appraisals are done. And so really what they they do is you they allow clients to transfer more assets to their children without using as much of their exemption amount. It's basically making it look like you're transferring more than what you actually are. Um, and so they're they're really great use, um, really great use in, in transfer tax planning. And these changes, again, we're going to eliminate a lot of those discounts as of the enactment date. So, again, those were really big changes right there. We were going to try and get things done as soon as we can with these clients to make sure we could use the rules while we have them. Did I sum it up there? Did I miss anything there, Deborah? <laughs> no, I think that was great. And I think in terms of illustrations, you know, some of the concerns that we had with these prior, you know, September 13th proposals was that, the the rules were so broad such that the grantor trust rules that that were that were going to be changed would have really changed so many types of trusts because of the distinction between grantor trusts that are for income tax purposes and grantor trusts that are for estate tax purposes so the changes that were proposed were really going to target a trust if it was a grantor trust for income tax purposes even if it was not one for estate tax purposes, which is a distinction that I know is a little bit too technical to get into right now, but I do think that it's important for those listening to keep in mind that this would have changed a lot of transactions, anything from if you, your common ILIT or insurance trust, you know, we had times where we had clients put insurance policies into a trust and to keep it outside of their estate, but there was still a way that the that they were going to, and, and now because of the rules regarding the withdrawal rights that were typically in those trusts for beneficiaries and the language in the trust that allowed the trust to make premium payments on those insurance policies on the grantor's life were going to also be 
triggering the rules that were very aggressive against these grantor trusts. So it wasn't just your typical, what you would envision as a grantor trust that's outside of specialty industries. These applied in, in just a wide variety, grats, slats, you know, everything that we, we do for planning. So I think it's important to just keep that in mind that they're for a lot of the typical estate planning tools that we use, which will come up a little bit when we talk about how we were trying to are trying to plan around them. So I think that was the only thing that I would say, and if also intentionally defective grantor trusts, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. Again, income tax purposes, it's a grantor trust. Non-income tax purposes, it's not, but it's still subject to the rules that were proposed and would have caused issues with typical gifting and or sale transactions between those trusts because they were no longer treated as the same or one and the same with the grantor. So I just wanted to add that in terms of the just how broad these rules were. But I think if I think that summarizes where we were, and now we can kind of go a little bit to what the new the new rules or new proposed rules and what they might be. So on October 28th and November 3rd, there was a released there was released a revised version of the act. And so what's out? We'll start with that. Actually, is the changes to estate gift GST exemption amounts. So we're back thinking that the sunset will really not be in 2021, although it still could be. There's a lot of side conversations and articles that we read that suggest that it's not entirely off the table, even though it wasn't in the formal version of the newly proposed bill. All the changes we just discussed about the grantor trust rules are nowhere to be found. Although, again, we hear murmurings of just generally this is still being a subject that's to be discussed. And who knows? You know, we've talked about how maybe because the infrastructure bill was passed and the leverage that was being used in terms of passing these two bills together is no longer applicable, it could be that these come back again because they seemed very important and were very much the subject of, of a lot of discussions. Changes to valuation discounts, everything basically Rachel just said to you was were removed and the billionaire tax that was also discussed. And now we'll talk about what's in there, which if if you pay attention a little bit to the, the nuances of it, and we've talked about this a lot, about how much they're, they are different rules, but they do seem to target similar concepts. So although we don't have all of the changes that we outlined, we do have a proposal that includes a surcharge on high income earners. So that's a 5% tax on AGI in excess of 10 million, 5 million for taxpayers filing as as married filing separately. And then an additional 3% tax applies to AGI over 25 million. So no billionaire tax, but there is this surcharge that applies at a level that's, that is pretty substantial, but for some of our clients, not necessarily so. Surcharge on non-grantor trusts. So that same concept, a 5% tax would apply to the AGI of a non-grantor trust in excess of 200,000, which is definitely on the lower threshold when it comes to the way we plan with these trusts and the types of gifts that are typically made into these non-grantor trusts, which again are used as vehicles to keep outside of a grantor's estate. And then an additional 3% tax applies to AGI of a non-grantor trust in excess of 500,000. So again, these numbers, 200,000, 500,000, a lot of times when we encourage clients to make gifts, especially under the current exemption amounts, but even in the 5 million exemption amount, we're well above these thresholds or could be as the income accumulates or as the principal accumulates because of the because of investments or additional gifts that are made. So I think that's something to still be cautious about when we think of the numbers and and what the consequence is and i would also add that i that that does change the analysis and we'll talk a little bit about this that if that's applied typically 
there's reason to keep a lot of the value inside the trust and make minimal distributions to let that that value grow and then pass that those assets on to future generations that are beneficiaries of a non-grantor trust. But now if there's a tax applied to the trust, there's an incentive to make or even maybe a necessity to make distributions more regularly or to make larger distributions to beneficiaries because their income tax and the tax obligations that the individual beneficiaries might have would be lower than the 5% tax. Potentially, not always, but these are just things to keep in mind about what the consequences of, because even though they're suddenly not attacking grant or trust, that doesn't mean that they don't change the way a lot of gifting would be done or how we think about administering trusts if these rules were to pass. Well, I think you bring up a really good point, Deborah, which is that you know, the the fact that we've had these these really big changes, the grantor trust rules, lowering of the estate and gift tax exemption amounts, all of that kind of being taken off the table right now. Um, to your point, one, it's not completely off the table, right? It still always could get thrown back in. We Congress is, is still negotiating heavily over this bill. It does not sound like they all, all of the senators are in agreement yet. And so you know, we could easily see one of these rules pop back in um, in a later ver- version of the bill. And so it's something to keep in mind. And, you know, one of the big things that Congress really wanted to pursue this year was lowering the income inequality that we have in this country. And so, you know, really trying to attack the the, the 1% and, you know, uh, eliminating these leap, the, the loopholes, as they say, or we call it the tax planning opportunities. Um, and so it's really, you know, cracking down on on non-grantor trusts. And we could see that here as you were talking about with the surcharge on non-grantor trusts. While they took out all those grantor trust provision changes in the earlier version, they're still adding the surcharge. And you could tell then that Congress knows and they understand that these types of trusts are used constantly because they are great vehicles to transfer wealth onto future generations. And so Basically, like to your point, it's not off the table completely. We could still see it being brought back in. And the surcharge on non-grantor trust is something to really consider, um, because if this provision does stay in this bill and we see it in the final version, if if there is a version that actually does come out and actually is signed by law, I guess we kind of need to add that asterisk to this whole conversation. Uh, You know, nothing is guaranteed. But if it actually is included in the final version that's signed into law, it really need, it really is going to force clients to think about how to tax plan every year. To your point, trusts are taxed at the highest tax rate when you have uh, income over about $12,000 each year. And so when you're looking at that, now these additional surcharges on that, you're looking at an extremely high tax rate. And so if the trust is going to be accumulating the income and holding on to it, not distributing it to the beneficiaries, that's a pretty massive tax bill um, if they have income in excess of these amounts. And so to your point, it's going to be a really good conversation to have with their accountants and with their tax planning attorneys on whether or not it's beneficial to make these distributions, make larger distributions to the beneficiaries, to push the income tax on the beneficiaries who likely may not always, but likely would have a lower tax bracket. Um, Or, of course, then to start making uh, distributions to charities and making sure that you've got charities involved as as beneficiaries in these trusts so you can lower uh, the the income tax liability. So definitely still some big changes to discuss. Obviously, it's not the the, the nightmare that all estate planning attorneys were freaking out about a couple months ago, but some some big provisions for sure. 
You know, you bring up a good point when it comes to charitable distributions, and I know we've sort of played around with this, but you do wonder if there won't be some kind of policy-focused reason to exclude any kind of charitable planning trust from those surcharges. You know, are we going to are we going to pass a rule that effectively might incentivize people who create these trusts to make distributions to individuals sooner? Again, you can make them to the charity, so maybe that's the way you get around the policy questions about it, but is it ultimately going to be a problem? Because during life, most people wind up giving the goals to give to their kids in, in a lot of these scenarios if they're not already creating some kind of foundation or really focused on some charitable goals that are long-term. But the question is, will this will this cause an issue for CRUTs, for example, as well, or any kind of charitable focused trust? So I think that's a question that hopefully will become clearer as the days go by. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really good point there. So what we can really expect, I guess, going from here now, uh, now that this last week we saw the, the newest version of the bill. So, you know, Congress has kind of put its own deadline to, to pass the bill. We've seen, what, I think, two or three self-imposed deadlines already that have come and gone. Uh, but this <laughs> newest, yeah, but this newest deadline is to pass this act before Thanksgiving. So as of the, the date of this recording, we're a few weeks out from Thanksgiving in 2021. So we'll see if Congress can uh, come to an agreement and, and decide on whether or not to, to pass this newest version. Historically, we have seen um, these types of bills passed in mid-December. So if the Thanksgiving deadline comes and goes, you know, it's it's not completely out of the ordinary. We've seen it usually around uh, mid-December. Usually, you know, people get busy in the holidays. Congress gets busy, I guess. So they got to push it off a little bit longer. Um, but that's what we can kind of expect. And um, some other things, you know, to, to really expect, again, we were talking about anything can come back on the table. So that's something to, to, to keep in mind. Um, there's also been discussion that, you know, specific provisions could be made retroactive given whenever the date is that they decide to pass this, if, if at all. Um, so that's something to still keep in mind, that it's not completely off the table yet. I think we went over most of it in terms of the concern about the 5% tax, and then we'll go into what we're planning on and how we continue, of course, to be concerned about the impending sun sunset of this very generous exemption amount that uh, I think I think still guides a lot of our decisions. And, and the concern, as you said, that anything could go back on the table. Absolutely. So, all right. So what we're doing in the midst of all this, well, we're drinking a lot of caffeine. That's what we're doing. Um, but besides that, um, one thing that we're doing is just really reviewing a lot of these trusts that our clients have. Um, the biggest thing is when we've got a client that comes to us and maybe they've got a, a legacy trust, a dynasty trust that was intended to be set up as a non-grantor trust, we need to review it. And, you know, it may have been drafted by another attorney. It may have been drafted 10, 15 years ago. Who knows? A lot of these trusts, you know, they're they're kind of set it and forget it. You just don't really uh, talk about it much. And so really reviewing these trusts, dusting them off to make sure that all of the intended tax results actually happen. And so if it is supposed to be a non-grantor trust, let's make sure and let's review all the provisions to make sure the grantor doesn't retain any powers over that trust. Um, that would cause the trust to be a grantor trust because, again, the grantor trust rules are put back onto the table in, in another revised version. We want to make sure we're not tripping up on those rules. So first thing is just reviewing all of your old trust agreements. Make sure we've got what we want. 
in connection with your comment about reviewing car and trust for potential slip-ups, I think the other thing that we've been seeing a lot of is how to just avoid the potential for any of these grantor trust rules being applied without undoing the, the concept or the underlying goal of a trust. So you can still have an insurance trust, an islet, and have it be a vehicle through which premium payments can be made. We've just been changing it to make sure that those payments are made only by an independent trustee and someone who is outside the realm of not the grantor, not a trustee who's related. We just want to make those very clean so that in the event that any of the rules that related to grantor trusts, that because of the insurance premiums and the payments that are made through them, that they're not triggering any issues under the potential new laws. And then taking out withdrawal rights. We've talked about how the withdrawal rights in some of these trusts can trigger ownership now if those new rules that were from the previous version of the act are somehow rediscussed and brought back in, taking those out and making sure that those trusts still qualify to be used for insurance purposes. But we just tweak them a little bit to hedge our bets and err on the side of caution in a situation where we're not entirely sure what happens next. So I think that goes along with even if it's just a trust that we've drafted, you know, it doesn't have to be that old. It could be also one that worked before and we're just not sure what the consequences of the drafting will be in the future. So I think that's definitely something that we've seen a lot of. And I think we would continue to advise clients to consider. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's key. Yeah. And I will say too, is building in that flexibility, right? When we're creating these brand new trusts and doing these, these transactions this year is making sure that we've, we've got the ability to amend the trust, whether that's adding in a trust protector that has that ability, we have the ability to decant the trust if we need to, because at the end of the day, we don't know what Congress is going to do. I wish we had a crystal ball. Man, we would make a lot of money if we had that kind of crystal ball, but we don't. And so really, you need to build in as much flexibility as you can in these trust agreements, because if the law doesn't if the law comes out, it's, it's not what we expected. We want the ability to change the trust agreement to be able to get the tax result that we want. So that's huge. So another thing that we're doing right now is we're making a lot of gifting transactions. We're making large transactions. And what we're doing to kind of hedge against all the, the changes in the tax laws is we're building in some protections by using formula clauses and formula disclaimer clauses, and sometimes both. Um, so we'll kind of get into that a little bit and what that really means. And then the other big thing is setting up preferred partnerships. In the event the grantor trust rules are brought back on the table, preferred partnerships is a really useful way to uh, kind of get the, the income stream that you want, get everything that you're, that you're wanting without using these trusts that might not be really Use, useful at that point anymore. So we'll get into that as well. So how about we start with formula clauses and formula disclaimers? So formula clauses, they really what they are is it's just a method of building and protection and capping gifts. And so what it does is they protect against unintended gifts and they eliminate the risk of an increased gift that's going to be subject to gift tax because of a valuation issue later down the road. So, for example, let's just say, you know, if you if we were just going to be uh, transferring cash and marketable securities, that's pretty easy, right? If I want to transfer five million dollars of cash and marketable securities when the market closes. I know how much Apple stock is going to be at the end of the day. I know exactly how much I'm going to transfer to my heirs. Super simple to the point. Well, ninety nine exactly like our clients. Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. That's what all of our clients do. <laughs> 
No, of course it's never that easy. 99.9% .9 of the time, it's gonna be a lot more complicated. A lot of high net worth clients uh, hold their assets in family businesses. And so again, we talked about those valuation discounts, they're really useful. There's other, of course, a multitude of reasons why you might wanna hold your assets in family owned businesses. And so let's just say, for example, we've got a family limited partnership. And that family limited partnership owns four LLCs. And those LLCs all own real estate that is being invested. So understanding what the value of that family limited partnership is at the very top of that, that chart is gonna be really hard. We're not going to know what the exact value is. And so it's gonna be really hard to determine how many, let's say, limited partnership units we're gonna be transferring to the children um, and, and really staying under the current estate and gift tax exemption amounts. So what the formula clause do is they transfer a fixed set of rights just at an uncertain value. So let me give you a very, very bare bones example of what that might look like. So let's say mom and dad are transferring to their kids a sufficient number of mom and dad's limited partnership units in the Jones family FLP. And it's gonna have a fair market value for federal gift tax purposes of $11 million. So that's kind of what the formula clause, again, at its very basic, that's what it is. And so we're saying that we're transferring $11 million worth of limited partnership units to the kids. We don't know how many units that is. Could be five units, could be 10,000 units. We don't know because we don't know what the valuation is on the date of the gift. And so these formula clauses basically cap the, the amount that we're trying to gift by setting that certain number, but saying that we are transferring a fixed set of rights. Does that kind of make sense? Oh yeah, makes sense as much as uh, any of these formula clauses can make sense, but I, <laughs> we, we do them all the time, so they make sense to us. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. I see them in my sleep now, we do them so much. Um, so that's a formula clause, and in, sometimes we use a formula clause, sometimes we'll use a formula disclaimer clause, and sometimes we'll do both. So what a formula disclaimer clause is, it's very similar. Again, it's just a way of building in more protection and capping large gifts. What the disclaimer clause does is it states that the recipient of the gift is only going to accept a fraction of the gift property that's not going to increase the transferor's federal gift tax liability. So in the example that I talked about before, mom and dad's going to be gifting limited partnership units in Jones Family FLP. Um, in that case, if say we were going to be doing um, $11 million, the valuation came in at $12 million. So we've got an excess of a million there. The child is going to disclaim that excess amount, that $1 million, because we don't want to increase mom and dad's gift tax liability. And so the child just would not accept the property. They are disclaiming it. And when we're making these disclaimers, they are going to be qualified disclaimers under the IRS rules. So what that means is they have to be made within nine months and the recipient could not have accepted any of the benefits of the, the, the gifted property. And so that's really something to keep in mind when you're looking at what assets you are going to be gifting. And so, for example, if you are gifting real estate, that's a big one right there. If mom and dad are gifting cabins to their kids, we want to make sure the kids weren't actually using the cabins, living in the cabins, because then there's an argument that they've accepted the benefits and that it's not going to be a qualified disclaimer. So again, the, the formula disclaimers, again, they just kind of cap it 
so that we were trying to limit the amount that's being gifted and not incur a gift tax liability. I think it's a really important point to to sort of reiterate what you're saying in terms of we're trying to build flexibility for clients to make sure that we can gift the maximum amount currently in, in theoretically and make sure that we can utilize the most that we can, but then also to protect situations where there could be a shift, you know, and at the time if, if laws change and they haven't used that cabin in those nine months and they're able to disclaim it and the laws have changed in terms of what the gift tax rules are and and what that exemption amount is we have some flexibility and i think the greatest parallel that i can come up with is when you have a situation where in estate planning when you create a credit shelter trust or sort of the trust that you would would have hold your estate tax exemption amount we often see language that makes sure that the amount that's in the trust is no greater than the estate tax exemption amount at the time of death. So this is sort of a living version of that concept, just for to bring it home to people who maybe are thinking, wait a minute, why do we have all this language belt and suspenders? What What is this ex- exactly doing? And I think w- Rachel and I always talk about, we have to constantly remind ourselves that what, what is the sort of immediate goal and what are we answering? And I think that flexibility that Rachel talks about and the ability to ensure that our clients can make the gifts that they want, but also protect themselves from not going over any amount is, is the point of these sort of belts and suspenders. So again, I think it's the living version of what we see in a lot of documents that involve some kind of credit shelter trust. And that's, I think that's in most in most states that I've worked in, but it definitely in New York, we've seen it where we want to make sure that it's no greater than the state estate tax exemption amount. So there's a delicate balance in different jurisdictions, but this is somewhat similar to that, or if not identical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good, good point. You know, the the formula clauses and the formula disclaimer clauses, we're not making something new up here. This is these are these are techniques that have been used for quite a while, but they're not perfect techniques, right? So with with formula clauses, the the IRS they don't really like them. They don't really like them too much. Um, there's been cases that the IRS has won. Um, where the taxpayer has used a formula clause. And there's been cases that the IRS has lost when the formula clause has been used. And so the way that we draft our formula clauses is obviously um, the same way that where the IRS has lost those cases. Um, And when we're using the disclaimer clauses, to your point, we're using them as we have used them before. When you see them in in normal revocable trust agreements, where the trust splits upon the first upon the uh, first spouse's death, if you have a joint couple. And so, you know, while we've seen these before in planning, they still are unique. And just the fact that we're in a really unique tax environment right now, right? We we really don't know what the law is going to look like in two weeks, a month, a year from now. Um, obviously, you know, what we talked about two weeks ago is not even applying to where we are today. And so that really plays into it. And so the IRS and the tax court, you know, they haven't seen and and really tried to uh, evaluate these clauses in these circumstances. And so there is risk in doing all of these gifting transactions. Um, Using both the formula clause and the formula disclaimer clause together, that has also not been the subject of prior case law um, or regulations. And so again, again, just the biggest thing is to reiterate with clients that there are risks in doing these transactions our belief in setting up these transactions, you know, this certain way and using the the language that has been approved before by the tax courts, you know, our opinion is that there should not be a gift tax that would be owed at the end of the day. But there is a risk that the tax courts or the IRS could disagree with us and say that the formula clause or the formula disclaimer clause or both 
should be ignored and that a tax is owed. So the biggest thing, you know, that we've really been doing with our clients, too, is just reiterating the risks, going over the benefits of making these transactions now where we have these beneficial rules. And then, of course, talking them through the risks, letting them know, you know, here's here's what's been going on. Here's where we think the outcome would be. And but here's, you know, how it, the the tax courts could disagree with us and really letting the client make the decision at the end of the day on whether or not to proceed with these transactions. You sort of wonder if the, the risk is or the concern or the sensitivity, we should say, of the IRS is so much related to the formula cause use in a gift tax situation because it's so much about what the valuation is at the time of the gift and and then how that applies at the time that any of this is filed. I mean, if you think about a lot of this, these are lifetime gifts that we're dealing with. They're not annually filed. So the question then becomes about a revisit and, and how that's interpreted. So I think I think that's some of the riskier parts of this as opposed to when you're dealing with, of course, there's a risk in any estate planning and any kind of um, tax language that it can change. But you know, when someone passes, there's a very clear cut date that is a little bit easier in some instances to, to consider how the formula clause applies. I think with these gifts and when the, the tax laws are in flux and the question about the valuation at the time, that's that's I think maybe where the sensitivity comes from. But who knows who I can't definitely can't get to the mind of the IRS. And related to that concern is another mechanism that we've been using a little bit more of um, the preferred partnerships that Rachel mentioned, albeit those definitely seem to spark intrigue as a result of the potential for the grantor trust rules to be enacted. Again, just to remind everyone, if you're just tuning in or fast forward parts of this, the, the grantor trust rules that we were concerned about would have made it so that a typical estate planning transaction with an intentionally defective grantor trust would no longer be beneficial. Those involved the use of a grantor trust for income tax purposes that would be outside the grantor's estate. And typically mom and dad, the grantor, would instead of making a gift into those trusts, which could potentially use up exemption amounts or trigger a liability, would make a sale. And that sale would be with a promissory note. And so you would slowly be able to pay the grantor, mom and dad, from the trust for consideration. That's a valuable consideration for the sale of the assets that went into the trust. And because as long as these new proposed rules about grantor trusts are not enacted, transactions between a grantor and their trust are not deemed to be a transaction that results in a tax liability. That was a very effective way to transfer assets without gift tax issues. It's a bona fide sale as long as the promissory note is a bona fide debt, which is another podcast in itself. And there was no income tax liability or capital gains that were dealt with for the grantor as long as everything was kosher, so to speak. But if that changed, if that changes, if the new rules that we've heard about murmurings about in the prior iterations of the BBA, then you're you're at risk there. So those transactions are not are not valuable because those benefits are no longer relevant. So what do you do then? Because the, the still the goal is to try and figure out how to shift value to a lower to a generation that's younger. And so one of the things we've thought about is preferred partnerships, which are a similar concept. Again, it's it's a way to avoid the gift tax issue, but still have the value shifted. Now, I think that it's important to note that some the, the preferred partnerships are not a new concept. A lot of estate planners have used them. It's just a question of what your priority is with a sale to an intentionally defective grantor trust. You have a steady income stream, actually effectively a required income stream that's a little bit different from what you'll hear about here. 
And same with a GRAT, for example, which would have been one of the vehicles under attack, but that would have had a steady income stream. So the question is where, what, how much you want a steady amount paid to you and how much the flexibility of a corporate structure is valued versus how much you would rather just have everything in a trust and it really doesn't matter whether there's an LLC or a partnership and control involved. So those are all questions that that still always have to be answered, but preferred partnerships seem like a potentially really valuable, perhaps underutilized way to go, especially if the grantor trust rules that we discussed would be passed. But even even if they aren't, we think it's a valuable thing to discuss. So what are they? Very long-winded introduction. Preferred partnerships effectively are a way of dividing either a new, the interest either in a new LLC or partnership or in an old existing LLC or partnership through a recapitalization event. And you divide the value between preferred interests and non-preferred interests, which I will call common interests, which are just less of a mouthful. So a parent, typically, let's just say older generation, the transferer will retain the preferred interests and they will then transfer the common interests to the younger generation. Preferred interests will have a priority to income. They'll have liquidation rights, rights to call liquidation, put rights, et cetera. And, but they will also have a cap on the upside or the growth potential. The rights granted and the preferred payment rights are used to increase the value of the retained interest. Because in that way, then you ensure that you're not making too large of a gift. You're, you're keeping the value with the, with the older generation. Then the common interest would be subordinate to income and liquidation rights of the preferred interest, but they would capture all the growth of the partnership or the LLC. So all of the increased value would go to these common interest holders, typically the children or younger generation, and they would get the benefits of that appreciation. And it would be outside, again, once again, outside the estate of mom and dad so that all of that growth goes there. The growth typically was then often even enhanced by the fact that the parents or transferors or preferred interest holders would have non-cumulative dividend rights. So effectively they would be able to not take any dividends or make any distributions to themselves. And then those amounts not paid could be shifted to the holders of the common units. So you even push more of the value to the common interest holders or the younger generation sort of calling this a freeze, a value freeze, because the older generation or parent owns the preferred interest, a younger generation owns the common interest, preferably typically through an irrevocable trust of sorts. And there's the freeze of the growth in value of the preferred partnership interest, and that shift in growth goes to the common interests. So that's the structure of them. All of that was lovely, and in 1990, the IRS said, we see you, and this is a potential abuse, so we are going to enact 2701, 2702 applies if the transferee is a trust, but we're just going to talk about the concept of 2701, which is a section that was designed to create a deterrent to using these estate tax freezes by applying special valuation rules for gift tax purposes that basically say that unless certain restrictive limitations are met with respect to the interests that are retained by the parent or the transferor preferred interest holders, that interest will be zeroed out for gift tax purposes. So that means that because their interest has zero value, all of the value went to the common interest. And what does that mean? Gift tax issues, because you have effectively made a very large gift in one lump sum to the younger generation, thereby completely undermining the goal of these types of preferred partnerships. So what are the rules? Because you can meet them. They didn't make it impossible. They didn't say these transactions aren't allowed. They just said that for the parents who hold the preferred interest, they have to, they have to meet certain rules. So the preferred interests are called in the 2701 uh, that we're talking about applicable retained interest. 
those applicable retained interests are by the family members. So the, the, the way, there's a lot of definitions that go into this and we won't go through every single one, but the goal being that an applicable retained interest will only be respected and not zeroed out or subject to these subtraction rules if the distribution rights meet the standards that are set by 2701. The other rights, they call them extraordinary payment rights that are about liquidation rights, call rights, put rights, other other very, in, very powerful uh, rights without being duplicated, but sort of ability to change the value because you can just liquidate the entity. Those extraordinary payment rights are zeroed out no matter what, because those can be made at any time. And the IRS saw that the parents could simply just not exercise them. And so they have no value because there's no requirement that they be exercised. So the qualified payment right concept applies to distributions, which effectively requires that the holder of the preferred interest has to receive a distribution that is payable on a periodic basis, at least annually. They have to be cumulative, which means unlike what I said before about non-cumulative distributions, you can't just punt them to the neck to the common interest holders. They have to be paid out and they have to be determined at a fixed rate or a fixed amount, which goes back to what Rachel was discussing about valuation. You know, when you make these transfers of LLC interest, you don't always know what the value is. So they're trying to get a fixed value so they know exactly what the amount is that the parents are being paid and what amount is being retained. And then they can evaluate what is actually being transferred. We won't go into all the details of this, but there have been many discussions between Rachel, me, Brent, about how to use a certain type of language that is similar to a formula clause that determines the value. But again, the 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 really important part is that the IRS is very focused on making it something that can be ascertained or somehow determinable on the date of transfer. So it would have to be a fixed rate that can somehow be comparable to a stock. So something that people can value with reference to something that has an actual quantifiable value. And I would say that the the challenge of creating a formula cause around that rule is something that we've discussed a lot and we're trying to work through. And there is some risk, but there's also, as, as Rachel mentioned, a lot of blessings on formula clauses, so they can be beneficial for these as well. But the, the law, the the very big picture is that these preferred partnerships, they're not new. People have been doing them before. They just were less, I would say, not used as frequently as I would say the transactions we talked about with the intentionally defective grantor trusts or grats, but they seem to be a really good option and potentially a safe option to anticipate the potential for these grantor trust rules to apply. Absolutely. That was a mouthful. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> a lot going no, on there. I think it, it goes to the heart of it, right? Where it, it, it sounds complicated, but at the end of the day, it's it's how you're describing it at the very beginning, which is that this can be a new LLC, a new partnership. It could be an existing one. And what takes it from just a run-of-the-mill, you know, your your I guess, normal, in quotation marks, LLC, family-owned business, is that you have this recapitalization event to create these preferred interests and these common interests. And what we've really seen in, in analyzing whether or not preferred partnerships would be a, a great avenue to pursue with a client, potentially, is whether or not our client needs an income stream, right? If, if they are... Um, gifting, you know, $11 million, $20 million, if we've got a couple, that's a big chunk of their assets that they are now transferring to a future generation that they no longer have any control over, that they're no longer, you know, going to have any income stream coming back to them. And so for our clients who need that income stream, 
because maybe all of their assets are tied up in businesses or whatever it may be, preferred partnerships are a really great and useful tool to provide an income stream back to the transferors while still, like you were saying, freezing the assets and transferring as much wealth as you possibly can to the future generations. And so at its core, it's it's similar to all the other, you know, transfer tax planning, you know, techniques that we use, which is we're focusing on freezing the value of the asset on the day that we're doing the transfer and trying to push as much wealth as we can to future generations. It's really what it comes down to, right? That about sums up our job. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Okay. I need to write that down because that'll be really good to put on LinkedIn or something right that there. One. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, that's that's pretty much what we've been doing, right? This is what, you know, there there's this is, I guess, the, the trade secret that we just kind of let out of the, the bag right now and how we're dealing with all the, the different tax changes. And like we said earlier, we're, we're still going on. The next couple months, we're still doing transactions with clients just because we have a new revised version of the bill. It hasn't doesn't really change in our books. It's great. We got a little sense of relief. We got to take a breather for about maybe an hour and then we were, got right back to it. And, you know, we're still operating on the function that anything can get brought back in. And all of the tax planning techniques that we've talked about on this uh, episode today are just really good tax planning techniques. Um, and, you know, doing these gifts, you know, uh, all, all of the, the preferred partnerships, you name it, sales, it's it's good to do. It's really good to do. And so the one thing at least, you know, I'm I'm kind of thankful for is that, you know, Congress, you know, bringing all this up and, and scaring us half the death in September with all of these changes has really brought this issue so that we could have these good discussions with our clients. You know, some clients who may have been just, you know, not really ready yet, I would say. You know, they, they know they wanted to make the gifts, but they didn't really have the the oomph to kind of get them going, get the ball rolling. It really has. And so it's starting the conversation with our clients on whether or not to make these gifting transaction or sales or preferred partnerships or whatever we're going to be doing. And I see that in the foreseeable future. And we'll see. Maybe next week Congress is going to change. They're going to put all these old provisions back into the new bill. And, and you and I are going to have to jump back on and deal with this and, and kind of explain it all again. But until that happens, this is how we're kind of operating right now. Well, it's good to have team members who constantly are able to talk about and relive and relearn every section of it. So thank you for that. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> All right, Deborah. Well, thank you so much for joining me again. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, we'll see if we jump back on next week, if depending on what Congress decides to do. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> All right, back to it. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.